gracious God. We are a dependent people. We depend on you now, God. Please come with the word. Spirit, move with the word of God into our hearts to stir our affections for you, to make us desire you more, to help us see that you are worthy, supremely worthy above all. God, give me grace to preach accurately and worshipfully. May you give grace to the congregation to worship you as they listen and receive and embrace the truth. Give us all grace to go from here, acting on your truth in heart, mind, soul, and strength by your grace seeking to please you based on what is preached this morning. We need you to do this, God. We can't do it without you. Give, give us hearts that are able. Give us minds that are engaged. May we love you, Father, during and after this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. So technology is making advancements way too fast these days. You agree? Feels like it at least. I mean, didn't we just have computer monitors that were as big as Buicks? Didn't we just have those? Like bigger than the desks that we put them on, you know, and, and about as heavy as a car? And, and wasn't I just looking for my DC Talk cassette tape in the glove box? of my first car. I, what, wasn't this happening? If you're, if you're a, in a youth group in the 1990s, you know what I'm talking about. And, and what happened to pay phones? What happened to pay phones and calling collect? I did that all the time when I was in high school. Call my parents, collect. Updates are coming faster and faster. New models of the technology that we have are being released before we know how to use all the features on the old models. And completely new inventions are being laid before our eyes. And let's admit it, there's some cool stuff out there. Things we're reading about, the things we're seeing in stores, pretty cool stuff. And it's happening so quickly. I mean, if you were to tell someone in colonial times that in the future they would have devices, that people would have devices where they would be able to talk in real time, face-to-face with their relatives over in England, you know, like Skype or uh, the app that you can use on your iPhones, they, they, they would have laughed at you and then gone back to turning butter. <laughs> Just a few touches of a button and you can talk to somebody in real time across the ocean. What will they come up with next? What will they come up with next? It seems like the sky's the limit, you know, as we're thinking about these things. So if you will humor me for a moment, uh, I'm going to suggest perhaps an invention that could be in the future. Let's say, just humor me, let's say that a techie comes up with a device that is able to translate your thoughts verbally, right? Something that you can attach to your brain, kind of Velcro on there or something that would translate what you're thinking into word form. 
out loud. Would you be camping out in front of the Apple store for that one? Would you? Say, yeah, for somebody else's thoughts, though, not mine. <laughs> I want to hear what that guy's thinking, not me. I want him to know what I'm thinking. No, we, that doesn't sound appealing to us personally. Why? Because there are thoughts, feelings, desires in you and in me that we don't want anybody knowing about. Dan said this a couple of weeks ago, but even the person in this world that you're closest to doesn't know everything that's going on inside of you. I mean, your, your, your best friend, your husband, your wife knows everything that's going on in here and here. And even though as Christians, we often do think biblically and our thoughts are pleasing to the Lord because we have new hearts and we have the Spirit, we still all have thoughts and feelings and desires that we know would hurt or devastate others. We all have struggles and doubts and lusts and lies that pass through our minds. And sometimes we hang on to them. Sometimes we nurse them so that they grow and begin to hold more influence inside of us. Sometimes we let the darkness and our hearts begin to spread. This is true of us all. All of us have these struggles, doubts, lusts, feelings, desires that we don't want to be broadcast to everyone. This is true of all of us, yet you've probably experienced times at church and around other Christians, these, these occasions when you feel like you're the only person who doesn't have his act together spiritually. Like you're the only person who finds it difficult to cling to the promises of God. Like you're the only person who's not on fire for Jesus. Like you're the only one who, do, who thinks such thoughts that are shameful. You feel alone in that and you feel a sense of heaviness because of that. Church, don't think that. Don't believe that. Don't, don't nurse that idea. Because I can introduce you this morning, and I am going to introduce you to one of the writers of the Bible. A writer of the Bible who believed lies, who was bitter at God, and who nearly threw in the towel and walked away from God. His name's Asaph. And his struggle is recorded for us in Psalm 73 so that we can remember something about God's grace and something about God's truth in those times when we are nursing the darkness in our hearts. So turn with me to Psalm 73. I'm going to read the, the whole psalm here. I want you to see this Asaph, and he's telling us about what he experienced in his heart and how he came out away from it through repentance. Okay, so hang with me. I'm going to read 1 through 28, 1 to the end. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. 
Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in troubles as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. May the Lord bless his word. In reference to this psalm, Pastor Josh Harris points out that verses 25 and 26 are two of the most popular verses from this psalm. Here we have them. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You've probably heard these in a song or in a sermon or in some Christian living book. But, my, but many of us probably didn't know that those verses come at the end of Psalm 73 after all the baggage of verses 2 through 16. Probably didn't know that those are the verses that are being spoken after all of the darkness and the coming out results in this worship and these statements. After all the me-centered self-worship that Asaph was guilty of, he came to a point of intense desire. A point of intense desire for and trust in God. Because of God's grace, you too, you too, when you're having thoughts, doubts, desires that are despicable, in fact, no matter how despicable they may sound out loud, you can get to a place like Asaph. You can get to a place like Asaph in your relationship with God that's characterized by worshipful 
reliance on him, and the highest affection for him. By God's grace, you too can utter such truths. So, although you may look at guys like Paul in the Bible, Daniel, Joseph in the book of Genesis, and you, you look at them and you read their stories and you read uh, Paul's letters and you, you feel like these, these guys are larger than life. Their faith is so strong. But here's Asaph, smack dab in the middle of the Psalms, saying, there's hope for you when you were sinking. There's hope for you when you're sinking, even when it's all your fault. The book, the Bible is not a book of stories of these men and women who've got all of their spiritual I's dotted and T's crossed, moving from one success to another success. That's what the Bible is. It's not a book full of those kinds of stories. Rather, the Bible is about a Savior God who rescues rebel sinners from his justice and continually gives them what they need to honor him and enjoy him even in the face of repeated failures and wickedness. That's what the Bible's about. And that's what we see in our text today. So as we walk through this psalm, we're going to see three things. There's three points that I want to take you through this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the lie that Asaph believed, the U-turn that Asaph took, and the God who made the difference. The Lie that Asaph believed, the U-turn Asaph took, and the God who made the difference. So let's look at the lie that he believed. Check out verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So Asaph here acknowledges the truth that God is good to the pure in heart. That is, he's good to those who follow him and are loyal to him by his grace. But in Asaph's perception, his previous perception, because he's come out of this, right? But his previous perception, in his previous perception, he didn't see this as true. He didn't feel like it was true as he contrasted his experience with the experience of the wicked. See, because in verse 2 he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. He almost walked away from the faith. He almost walked away from God. As he looked at the comfortable lives of the wicked, he allowed sin to grow and fester in his heart. And in verse 3, he tells us that he was envious. He was envious of those who don't love God because of their prosperity. Because things were going really well for them and not for him. He goes on in several verses to unfold this beef that he has and first, he, he talks about their physical well-being, right? If you look at verse 4, they have no pangs unto, until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, which we should take to mean that they, were, they weren't malnourished, right? They were well-fed. They were healthy. They were strong. And he comments on their circumstances, saying in verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are, meaning... They don't have hardships, trials, or tragedies in their lives. And they're also well-liked. Because if we look at verse 10, he tells us that people turn back to them and they find no fault in them. 
the way. Asaph wants us to know it gets worse. It's not just that there are people in this world who are comfortable, prosperous, and happy. It's not just that. It's that these people are living their lives contrary to God. These people, Asaph is watching, they wear pride as a necklace, meaning uh, it's, it's something they're not hiding. It's something they're showing off. Showing off their, their pride. And they don't just watch violent TV shows every now and then. They, they, they don't just play Halo on the Xbox during the weekends. Actually, they have violence covering them as a garment. It's, it's part of life for them. It's, it's a normal practice in their lives that they're violent people. They're characterized by it. And then Asaph says in verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens. And they speak against God. They proudly blaspheme as they walk through their lives, seeking to give themselves honor with their speech. Right? Their tongue struts through the earth, verse 9 says. It's a strange way of saying it. But they're using their tongues proudly for themselves. In fact, the arrogance of their speech uh, hits its apex in verse 11 when they ask, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? See, these wicked people are, are living sinfully. and they're, they're living for themselves, and yet they have lives of ease and comfort. So they question if God really knows what's going on down here on earth at all. Because there's seen this inconsistency. Does God even know? They skeptically question his, his omniscience, his all-knowingness. Asaph looks out at the wicked, and he sees these people. They're comfortable. They're healthy. They're well-liked. They're prosperous. But they're also people who practice evil and proudly dishonor God with verbal challenges to his glory and honor. But when he looks at his experience, when he looks at his life, his circumstance, what's going on, and his routine, he doesn't see the same thing. In verse 14, he says, he has been stricken all day long. Right? Stricken, or, or the New King James Version says, plagued all day long. And he's been rebuked every morning, or, or chastened, the NAS says. Chastened every morning. He has not experienced a life of ease and prosperity, but the real complaint lies with another difference between himself and those people he's just described. What, what is it? What's that difference? Asaph was pursuing purity. He was pursuing godliness. He was seeking to follow God. And they weren't. They were actually living contrary to his will. See, for Asaph, it all seems backwards. It all seems turned on its head right? Life doesn't feel right. If he's been working to do God's will for God's glory, then the comfort and prosperity should be what he is experiencing, not what they're experiencing, right? It seems opposite to him. These haters of God, are, are, are they living in prosperity, but, but not me. I, I'm, I'm seeking to live for you, and what do I get? God, you've got it all wrong, have you seen what they have done? 
have you heard what they've said? I mean, maybe I should stand right next to them, right, so you could see the contrast better. So it would be easier. It, it seems backwards. It seems upside down to Asaph. It should be the other way. I thought you were supposed to be good to those who were loyal to you, God. This doesn't feel like goodness. It feels like misery. One of my sons, when I bring him in to discipline him at times, he, son, he, he says something that resonates with my heart. Explain to him why he's going to get disciplined. Explain to him what the word of God says. And tell him, I'm doing this because I love you, son. This is good. Please believe me, this is good. With tears in his eyes, he'll tell me, it doesn't feel like love. You ever, you ever think thoughts like that about God? I know the word of God says it feels. I know the word of God says it, it's good. I know Romans 8, 28. I know that all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I know that's true. I know it up here. I know it's all over scripture. But it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like love. In those times, it's not that God has done anything wrong but we're not seeing things correctly. We're seeing things according to our own heart's perception. We're seeing things according to our feelings and our appetites. We're, we're engaging in those thought processes that are characteristic of our old way of life before Christ. It's not that God is in the wrong. It's that we aren't. But we can, we can sympathize, can't we? A child says something like that because we think that about God sometimes. It doesn't feel like love. It is. It is. Continue to hold to the truth. See, Asaph's heart thinking dark thoughts. It gets darker because in verse 13 he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, living for you, God, hasn't been worth it. That's what he's saying. It's not been worth it. Living for you has been useless. It's been a waste of time. Your way hasn't paid out. These thoughts are dark, and, and in case... You think they're not that big a deal. Asaph doesn't see it that way as he's looking back upon these events. He tells us in verse 15 that if he would have gone around Israel venting this to God's people in the midst of his wrestling, he would have betrayed them. He would have been undermining their faith and, and tempting them to doubt God. See, he says here, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He knows that these thoughts are dark. And if he were to tell people, certain people about it, 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 would, it would betray them. It would be hard for them. It might devastate some. 
thoughts like these are thoughts I'm sure that you've had. I know I have had thoughts where you doubted God and you essentially accused him of injustice toward you. Thoughts where you called God's goodness into question and showed yourself to be a person that was seeking to use God as a means to something else, as a means to some empty pleasure or empty treasure. And you knew when you thought these thoughts, and maybe you're thinking these thoughts now, that if you told certain people, it would be dangerous for them. Now listen, I'm not saying that I'm saying that you shouldn't have people that you go to whenever you're struggling like this. Don't struggle alone. Please don't struggle alone. If you're struggling with thoughts like these, there should be people in your life that you go to and you, you talk to about these things so that they can remind you of, of the word of God. But if, you, if you're one of these people that values the, the, what's kind of popular these days, which isn't real, just kind of talking about what's going on in your heart with anybody who's listening, please know it's not always good for you to do that. You should have some people, a handful of people you can talk to, you can get help from, but if, if you're just about venting and talking about what's in your heart just to get it out there, know that sometimes those dark thoughts, are, they're going to they're gonna hurt people. They're going to they're gonna tempt people to doubt and maybe, maybe, go, maybe go astray. So be careful. Always have those people, but don't, don't feel like you've got to tell everybody and that's just you being transparent and that, that's a good thing all the time. If you've had thoughts of serious doubt about God and what he's doing or, or has done, or, or if you're having thoughts like those right now, as you sit in the pew, God would not have you punish yourself mentally. You do that? When you sin, you punish yourself mentally? Meditating on your guilt and striving to feel as bad as possible as a way to pay for your sinful thoughts? God would not have you dwell in despair thinking that there's no hope for people when they think thoughts like these. God would not have you go there. Nor does he want you to remain in your sin, nursing those thoughts with further, further meditation, with further introspection, thinking that it's okay as long as you keep those things to yourself. God would not have you do that. No, God would have you go back to his truth. God would have you go back to his truth. He would have you obliterate the lies with the truth of his word. See, I want you to look at, with me at Ephesians chapter 4. Turn with me there, if you will. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Paul speaking to this church, the church of Ephesus, talking about how they have been taught to live. Verse 22, to put off your old self. To put off your old self. That is, the, the, the life that uh, was characterized by who you were before Christ, right? It was characterized by the, the sinful flesh. You put that off. Right? He says, which belongs to your former manner of life. And it's corrupt. Put off that way of thinking, that way of living, that way of desiring that was characteristic of who you were before Christ because it's corrupt through deceitful desires. Interesting. Corrupt through deceitful desires. Meaning, your heart 
when it is thinking those kinds of thoughts that were yours before Christ, and when we return to thinking along those old lines, using those old habits of thought, when we're doing that, our hearts are lying to us. When we're thinking in the flesh, according to the sinful nature, our hearts are lying to us. But here is what we need to be doing. Knowing that our hearts lie to us, we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, he says in verse 23. Renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Don't trust your heart. Trust the word of God what, that is outside of you. It's, it's, it's untainted by sin, right? It's, God's word is true. It's, it's inspired. It's God breathed. Trust the word of God. Don't trust your heart. It lies to you. I know you've been told to follow your heart. But we're told to follow God's word. And so renew it. Thank God's thoughts after him. Right? When, you're, when you're desiring things that are sinful, when you are having thoughts where you're doubting God, where, where you're embittered at God, where God doesn't seem to be giving you what you want and you're angry, run to the word of God and thank God's thoughts and pray that God would work through his truth to change your heart and make your heart follow after this, after him. This is exactly how Asaph makes a U-turn. If we're going to our second point here, this is exactly how Asaph makes a U-turn. God confronts him with the truth. He renews his mind according to God's truth, with God's truth. And we'll see, Asaph is freed from the enslavement of these sinful desires and sinful doubts. Turn back to Psalm 73. You're not already there. Look at me at verse 16. Asaph says, but when I thought how to understand this, that means as he was thinking about the fact that he couldn't put it all together. He, could, he still didn't have it nailed down. It didn't make sense. It wasn't uh, perfectly coherent and cognitively in order with him. He, couldn't, he didn't understand it perfectly. He says, I thought I'd understand this, and it seemed to me a wearisome task, right? He still didn't have it nailed down, and, and to try to get it nailed down just seemed exhausting. And so, he says in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. He doesn't have the issue nailed down, but he goes to the sanctuary of God anyway in verse 17. You know, you know what he's saying here? He, he went to the public assembly of worshipers. That's where he went. He went to the place where God's people were worshiping. And it is there where God confronts him with the truth. Essentially, Asaph went to church. Yes, Old Testament worship, but yes, the people of God, the followers of God, they're there. They're there for worship of God. He went there to the sanctuary of God. And that's where God met him with the truth. I think that there are some profound implications here. See, because too often we let dark thoughts, uh, dark desires, doubts keep us from church. 
keep us from being with God's people in a place where the truth of God is spoken. We can feel too guilty to meet with God and his people, so we stay away. Or we feel like we've got to have all of our theological questions answered, and it's got to be all wrapped up in a, in a cute little box with a bow on top, you know, so we don't have any questions out there whatsoever before we can really come. Maybe that's you. Church, don't let these feelings keep you from coming to meet with God, with his people. Why? Because if, if Asaph needs to encounter the truth, if he needs to have his mind renewed, and you and I, when we're thinking thoughts like these, we need to have our minds renewed with the word of God, why wouldn't you come to the place where there is truth? The place where truth is being preached, the place where truth is being taught, the, the place where uh, it is being read, the place where it's being sung, right? And, and the place where this is happening too. Look, look with me at Colossians 3, 16 real quick. This is what's happening too when you, when you come to the assembly of worshipers. Colossians 3, 16. Here's the commandment we're given from Paul as believers. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So here's what happens. Not only are you formally getting the word brought to you in these different ways, singing, praying, reading, preaching, teaching, but you're also experiencing that as we obey as the body. We are teaching one another. Uh, out of that word of Christ that we're allowing to dwell in our hearts, we're speaking out of that to one another and encountering God's truth as we fellowship, as we're teaching one another, as we're admonishing one another in all wisdom. So you're encountering that here in conversations too. So if, if we need the truth, let's put ourselves in these avenues where we can get the truth. Now you can get the truth yeah, you can get the truth at home. You can open up your Bible and encounter the truth. Yes, that's valuable. Please open the Bible. That's the first thing you should do is open the Bible and get your face in the word of God. But don't let guilty feelings, don't let these, these doubts, the fact that you think you've got to have everything figured out before you can, don't, don't let that stop you from coming because God uses his truth. He renews our minds. He, he gives us he gives us conviction. He gives us encouragement. He leads us to repentance. He gives us promises to cling to when we're here. So come. Please come. See, too, you have to remember this, and we'll talk about this more a little bit later. But because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, there's nothing that should keep you away from fellowship with him and fellowship with his people. Jesus paid for that guilt, right? He he made the sacrifice with his life to bring you to God. You're forgiven in Christ. There's no reason for you to hold back because he's done everything necessary to get that stuff out of the way. So repent and come. Be here in the avenue where you will get truth. And God will use that to grow you and change you. Because Jesus prayed, sanctify them with your truth, by your truth. You know, sometimes we need to grit our teeth and go to church when we don't feel like it. All the while repenting of the fact that we don't feel like it. 
and remembering that God loves you anyway because of Jesus Christ. Coming because you know God uses this. And remembering this too, I encountered this quote as I was listening to a sermon on Psalm 73 this week by a pastor named Dale Ralph Davis. He says this. He says, adoring God can often lift more of your burdens than understanding your burdens. Right? Come to church. And you know, maybe you don't have this issue figured out. It's like, like Asaph. It seems wearisome to try and figure it out. What has God revealed? What has he said about himself? What, what, what has he said he's done? What, what does he say he, that he is? Worship him because of what's been revealed. What is, he's given you in the word of God. Worship him, adore him. And often that does more for us than figuring everything out perfectly. Lord, I don't understand all of this yet, but you are holy, you are supreme, you are faithful and good. May I not need perfect comprehension about everything in order to adore you and worship you. Asaph comes to the sanctuary of God and he encounters God's truth that helps set him free. Asaph understood at this point when he comes into the sanctuary, the last part of verse 17, it says, I discerned their end, their being the wicked. I discerned their end, what was going to take place for them in the future. He understood that, at, that the wicked may have prosperity for a little while in this life, but judgment is coming for them if they don't repent. Let's look at verse, verses 18 through 20. He, he expounds on it. Truly, you set them in slippery places, the wicked. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So there is judgment coming for them. And we know that his heart has changed because of encountering this truth, because of what he says in verses 21 and 22. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's speaking to God. I was like a beast toward you. So we know that this truth he's encountered, that God brought him into contact with, has humbled him because he's not just getting this, this juicy truth about the wicked saying, yeah, you're, you got it good now, but just wait. He's, that would still be selfishness, right? No, we see that he's been humbled because he, he confesses his, his brutishness and his ignorance and, and the fact that he's been like a beast toward God. He confesses that so we can see that he's humbled. He was acting like an animal toward God, forgetting that there is life beyond this one. I think it's Charles Spurgeon I was reading this week that said, an animal doesn't think about eternity. And determining, he was determining that this satisfaction he was desiring comes from what we can get in the here and now. The truth that God showed Asaph revealed to him the true state of his heart. It didn't encourage more self-centeredness. See, in, in repentance, there must be lies that we leave behind and truth that we cling to, okay? Lies that we leave behind and truth that we cling to. And for Asaph, part of that truth that he needs to cling to is that, yes, they're, they're being prosperous right now, but a judgment is coming for them. But that's not the only truth that he needed to cling to. 
He becomes keenly aware of the end that is in store for the wicked, but he also becomes keenly aware of where he is headed in the future. Look with me at verse 23 as we contemplate the God who makes the difference, right? The God who makes the difference in Asaph. Look at verse 23. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Hear that? You will receive me to glory. The wicked, they're going to go to judgment. But by God's grace, I am going to be brought to glory. Let's also consider something else. In verses 23 and 24, you see three yous, right? You, right? One of them is, you will receive me to glory. But he also says, you hold my right hand. Speaking of God, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. See, Asaph's attributing all this, his, his coming out of this doubt, he's contributing, or I'm sorry, attributing it to God. He's saying, no, it was God who was holding my hand. With all of Asaph's doubt and bitterness against God, God did not turn his back on Asaph. God did not say, if you're going to be like that, then I'm done with you. No. What do you think? That Asaph went to public worship by himself, left to himself? Do you think that he remembered this truth, that God's future, is, future for the wicked is that of judgment? Do you think he remembered that on his own? This has been God's doing. This has been God's doing. Why can Asaph say, I am continually with you? Is he boasting in himself? Is he? I am continually with you, God. I never really left you. That, that, forget about that. All that stuff, that, that wasn't a big deal. I've been with you all along. I'm, I'm still devoted. No, he can say, I'm continually with you because of God holding his hand. He sinned. He doubted God. He had sinful desires. But God holds his hand. God guides him. God held his hand and brought him to the sanctuary and guided him with his truth about what is coming in the future for the wicked, and he will bring him home to glory in eternity beyond this life. Church, think about this. God's grace wouldn't be very amazing if you could out-sin him. Out-sin God? There wouldn't be much amazing about his grace. If you could have thoughts that were dark enough to go beyond his grace, you could have doubts that were deeper than his grace. His grace wouldn't be amazing. But listen to me, church. When there are seasons of doubt and darkness in your heart, times when you're disappointed or angry, angry with God, return to him. You will find he still loves you. You will find he is still gracious. He has not changed. He has not changed. Do you not think that he does not love you? Do not think that you are now denied access into his throne room. Do not think that you have 
to earn your way back into his arms. You have to earn your way into a relationship with him. No, Jesus already did all the work to earn your place in the family of God. He already did all the work to earn you that place. Don't act like he didn't do that for you. Don't live in that kind of unbelief. Don't act like he didn't die for you. Don't act like he didn't come and live a perfect life for you. He didn't rise again for you. Don't do him the dishonor of thinking your sin is too black or your doubts are too betraying. They're not. It may seem humble for you, church. It may seem humble for you to say, no, I am too filthy. I've sinned too much. I can't go back to God. My, my thoughts have been too dark. They're too awful. You don't know what's inside my heart. It may sound humble for you to say that. It's not. It's arrogant. It's proud. Because it means that you're still not relying on him. You're still consumed with self. Your eyes are still inward. Until you run to him, until you run back to him and repentance and trust, you're still in pride. You're still in arrogance. You're still in misery. Draw near to God through repentance and there you will find what's been true all along. He loves you. He loves you as much as he loves Jesus because you're in Christ. You trust in Jesus Christ, then spiritually speaking, you died with him to sin and you've been raised to new life in him. And we sin. We do. We have dark thoughts. But run back to him, believing that you're forgiven, believing that there's nothing, that is, there's no thought, there's no act that is too sinful. And you will find all along, he'd been loving you. And you'll experience that love once more. You'll enjoy that fellowship once again. The joy of your salvation will be experienced. It will be tasted by you again. Because he loves you in Christ. I want you to remember a, an acronym. When you're thinking when you've sinned, when, when the sin has been grievous, it's been wicked, whether it's outwardly or it's just going on here, and you know you need to come back to God. You kind of don't know where to start. You know you need to come back, but you don't feel like it, but you know you, you need to. Here's kind of an acronym I want you to remember that will, will help you. It's, a, it's the acronym CAR, C-A-R, okay, C-A-R. You need to confess, C confess. Confess your sin. It's against God. It is wicked. Confess it as what God says it is. Agree with God about it. It's wicked. It's against him. It's, it's not good. And for, ask his forgiveness, right? So confess, and then A, affirm. Affirm that God loves you. Not because of what you've done, not because of you, but he loves you in Christ, Affirm that. God loves me because Jesus died for my sins and I'm in him. Affirm his love for you. Affirm that you're forgiven. Say R. R. Request his grace to change. Request his grace to change. You won't change otherwise. You can't do it in your own strength. You, you can't change left to your own devices. Confess it. 
affirm that he loves you because of Jesus Christ and you're forgiven in Christ and then request the grace that you need to change. And draw near to him. You will find his mercy once again. Here's, I want to show you another text, another psalm that, that affirms this, I think. Uh, psalm 40, this is David. If you want to flip over there with me just briefly. Here is David when his life is racked with agony and sin and see what he's banking on here. Look at verse 11. 11 and 12, Psalm 40. It says, As for you, O Lord, I love this, you will not restrain your mercy from me. You're not going to restrain it. You're not going to hold it back. You will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. He believes in God, doesn't he? He trusts in God. For evils, verse 12, have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities, right, his own sin, it's taken him over. He says, my iniquities have taken me over and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. His life is racked with sin. It's, he, can't, he can't see things correctly. It's affecting him deeply. Right? But he knows even in his sin, where his mercy comes from. That God won't restrain it, right? And his loving kindness, his, his steadfast love, and his faithfulness will preserve him. It will preserve him. It will keep him. So even in the midst of sin, he knows he can expect mercy from God. Do you? Do you believe that because of Jesus? That if you come back to him through repentance and faith, you can expect his mercy because you're a child of his. Look with me back at Psalm 73. Let's look at verses 25 through 28. Here is, here is the, the, the end result out of He's, he's come out of the valley. He's come out of the depth of this, this doubt and this sin by God's grace, encountering the truth, confessing, right, believing what God has revealed, not believing the lies in his heart, and now here's the end result. What is his heart saying? What is the fruit of this repentance? Listen. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. For Asaph at this point, there's nothing on earth that holds a candle to God in terms of desirability and worth. Nothing that holds a candle to God. Think about that. There are lots of shiny things here on earth, right? Lots of things that we say, ooh, and ah about. Lots of things that people have camped outside of electronic stores for. A lot of things that people have worked overtime for. A lot of things that people have given their lives to of things that people think are worthy to give their lives to. A lot of things that distort their spiritual vision. But not so for Asaph, because now those things aren't distorting his vision. Asaph sees clearly now, and he knows these things are not more desirable than God. There's no one, there's nothing in this world that he desires more than God. 
But he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. I love this. He doesn't stop there. He says that there is, isn't anyone or anything in heaven that's more desirable than God. Right? That, that's what he means by whom have I in heaven but you. Yeah, not the angels. Yeah, I know they're perfect beings. Not the angels. Not, not a relative I've been longing to see who's in heaven. No, God, you. His affections are so strong for God that it's like all these other things. They don't hold a candle to you, God. They don't compare to you, these people, these things. You are my desire. And not only does he see God as of supreme desirability, but he also desires God. I'm sorry, trusts God supremely. So he desires God supremely, and he trusts God supremely. Look at verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. It's okay. He's not trusting them, right? But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's not trusting his own strength. He knows his flesh and his heart may give out on him. But that won't matter because God is his strength. His portion forever. God is the one who will uphold him. God is the one who will bring him into his forever joy in heaven. Asaph knows that there is nothing, there's no one else who can or will do that for him. Not trusting himself anymore. Not looking to himself. God is his strength. And look at 28 as we're closing here. Verse 28. This, this verse really helps to clarify for me the dramatic change in Asaph's perspective. Because in verses 13 and 14, it's obvious that Asaph's world centers on Asaph, right? All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Self-pity, pride, doubt, envy. So he's the center of his world there. But now, in verse 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. See, here's what Asaph was doing. As he was envying the, the wicked and their prosperity and their health and being well-liked, he was defining what was good for him. He said, what is good for me is that I experience what they're experiencing. He was allowing himself to define goodness. He was depending on himself to define what was good for him. Do you do that? Do you look at Romans 8.28? When God says he works everything together for good, those who love God and are called according to his purpose, do you look at that and do you find, define good? yourself? Do you fill in the blank? Okay, so goodness must mean this, that I get this, or I have this experience. Goodness must mean this for me. Or do you let the Word of God define what good is for us as Christians? Do you let verse 29 of Romans 8 say, where he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, and as we become more like his Son, you know what happens? We grow in holiness. We enjoy him more. We become nearer in our experience of God, nearer to him, closer to him. Do you let God define what is good or do you define what is good? 
here, Asaph, comes out on the other end, and he has God's definition of goodness. God himself. It is near, it is good for me to be near God. That's what's good for me. Not all this other stuff. Not, not the prosperity, not the health, not the bling, whatever. Right? It's be near to God. That's what's good for me. Because, because let's be honest, when we're saved, church, when Jesus Christ died, he died to bring us to God. Right? Look at me real quick. 1 Peter 3.18. This is what the Word of God says, 1 Peter 3.18. If you're not there, it's okay, I'm going to read it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. So God is the treasure. God is the delight. God is the enjoyment. He's not a means to something else. He is the treasure. Christ died to bring us to God. And Asaph knows that. He says, what's good for me? It's good for me to be near God because he's my treasure. I don't desire anything else besides him. There's nothing. There's nothing that can compare. Well, as we conclude, you may be saying that, no, that's not my experience. I'm not saying it's good for me to be near God right now. I have before, and I'm just struggling right now with doubt and sinful thoughts, and there's darkness in my heart right now. It's not my experience right now. I'm not saying, whom have I in heaven but you. To that, I ask, do you want that to be your experience? You long for that? It may be that you have a similar problem to that of Asaph, there are lies you're believing, sinful desires you are nursing. Maybe you feel like you want to walk away from it all. I say repent. Repent. Return to God even if you don't feel as though he is most desirable and most trustworthy. The word of God says he is. And so come to him and say, Lord, I don't feel like it. That's true. I don't feel like what Asaph's saying is true, but I'm choosing to believe it is. Give me a heart that desires you that way. Forgive me that I don't because I know you are. Forgive me that I don't treat you that way and that I haven't felt that way. I haven't had affections for you that way. Forgive me, Lord God. Help me remember that you love me and give me what I need to worship you like this. And then you act as though he is that desirable and that trustworthy. Stick, stick your face in the word like he is the most desirable and most trustworthy. Come to public worship like he is most desirable and trustworthy. Pray like he's most desirable and trustworthy. Serve him like he is most desirable and trustworthy. Deny yourself worldly pleasures as if he is most desirable and trustworthy. You know what will happen? As you're 
asking his forgiveness for your heart not being in the right place. You're reminding yourself that because of Jesus, God loves you regardless, and you're asking for the grace to change. You will find this, that his transforming grace will make your heart sing more and more like Asaph's. Are you his? We want to wait around until we feel a certain way to do something. I don't feel like this is true, so until I feel like it, I'm not going to do it. That's not gospel-centered living. It's not trusting in Christ. You act on what you know is true. You admit it. I don't feel this way, and I should. I should be rejoicing. God, help me rejoice. I know you love me. I know because of Jesus you love me. Give me what I need to rejoice like this. And you do what you're called to do anyway. And you pray that God will work through the public assembly, the word, through prayer, through his people, through service, to bring your heart closer and closer to a heart like Asaph's that says, there's nothing I desire besides you. Return to him. He's not going to, you're not, you're not going to find a stiff arm. He's a gracious God who loves his children. You're not going to find a stiff arm. Come back to him. Don't fear. Jesus has paid for it. Whatever it is, he's paid for it. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, oh, how we need you can't repent without you. I can't worship without you, Lord God. We know you're worthy. Father, give us hearts like Asaph's to cry out, whom have I in heaven but you? Oh, we know, we read these things, we know you're more desirable. Lord God, we, we look to things in this world that are not nearly as delightful. And we treat them as if they're supreme. God, forgive us and give us what we need. Recognize you like this and sing your praises like this and devote ourselves to you like this, God. Lord, help us. May the thought that even when we're not worshiping you like this, the fact that you still love us in Christ because your love for us is dependent on him and not us, may that make our hearts come alive because such love is indescribable. And may that motivate us to come, to keep coming back to the fountain of living, of living water, turning from these broken cisterns back to you, where we'll always find life and peace, mercy and grace because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray.